Welcome to International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory, and analysis. Hi guys, welcome to International Marxist Radio. This week we're going to be talking about science, the crisis of bourgeois philosophy, cosmology, and the findings of the James Webb Telescope, which last year detonated a bit of a bombshell in the heart of orthodox cosmology. And you might be thinking, why is it that Marxists care about this stuff? Why is it that we're talking about physics and the stars and the beginning of the universe? Shouldn't we be busy going to picket lines and agitating amongst the working class? Of course, we do all those things. But Marxists aren't mere activists. We are militant materialists, for one thing. We stand firmly in defense of genuine materialism, genuine science, against all attempts to poison it with religious superstitious ideas and mysticism. And this is the topic, actually, of an issue of the In Defense of Marxism magazine that I want to direct your attention to, issue 39. The whole issue is themed around the defense of the ideas of the Enlightenment, but it has an article in particular about the findings of the James Webb Telescope, which is a very powerful new piece of technology. It's the successor to Hubble, and it brought back images from the deep recesses of space. I'm by no means an expert on these matters. So uh, I'm very happy to welcome our guest, Ben Curry, who is a writer and activist for Marxist.com and the International Marxist Tendency. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Joe. Before we start, I think we should clarify that it's not only Marxists that are raising some objections about the state of science. I found a really interesting interview with a physicist um, called Sabine Hossenfelder. She was interviewed in The Guardian last year. She has a book out at the moment talking about what she describes as areas where physics blurs into religion. And she specifically draws out um, the Big Bang, which we'll come to later in the discussion. And she says, and I'm quoting here, um, these ideas are possible. They're all compatible with observations that we have, but I would call them ascientific. So, first of all, do you think that it's correct to say that science is in a crisis? Um, do you think it's fair to say that religious ideas are blurring into physics? Well, I think it's absolutely fair to say that. Um, I think, first of all, the sciences are in a very many-sided crisis. Um, there have been reports coming out recently about, for example, how there's a complete lack of, um, shall we say, revolutionary breakthroughs in science compared to in the past. It's, it's almost like science is grinding to a halt. Um, you have problems with uh, the reproducibility crisis. Science is, is, is being corroded by capitalism from all directions, and there is also a philosophical crisis within science. Um, and it represents, it's, it's reflective, should I say, of the philosophical crisis of society at large. Um, capitalism is in a deep crisis. The ruling class cannot offer a way forward for society. And they, they are filled with the bleakest despair and pessimism and, uh, and, and mystical and reactionary moods, which also find their reflection within the sciences. Scientists are just ordinary people too. And they reflect the prejudices and the moods in society and of the ruling class in this decaying system. 
And you see this on a number of uh, in a number of ways. I think you already mentioned this uh, this this physicist and the the examples that they give um, from Big Bang cosmology, where you uh, have a uh, a creation myth at the very heart of of science. And we'll come on to to maybe justify a little bit more what we mean by that. But uh, it goes beyond uh, Big Bang cosmology. Um, within quantum mechanics, there's a, there's a whole array of all sorts of mystical ideas uh, being revived um, there. Um, and uh, since the, the, the dawn of the 20th century, the, the dominant ideas in quantum mechanics um, have been mystical interpretations. The idea that it is the act of observation, the conscious observer who brings into reality the, 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 the world around them. Um, so in other words, consciousness is played at, placed at the core of reality and the material world is merely the reflection of this, this conscious uh, uh, act of observation. It's not a very big step from that to the idea that it is a conscious, thinking, benevolent God, a deity or something that brings into, into reality this, this world. All of these, these mystical ideas are cropping up all over the place. And, uh, and within theoretical physics, you also have seen in past decades, although they've fallen out of uh, fashion these days because of the, uh, their tremendous lack of success, the, the popularity of ideas of... Um, Science police over there. Carry on, Ben. It's yeah. all right. <laughs> you, see, you see the... Uh, uh, the, the the rise of all sorts of interest in uh, theories of everything, the hope that we will find some one equation which will explain all of the laws of physics. The attempt to shoehorn this infinitely complex world into a, sim a single simple equation. And what name have people pop? What what name has that? You know these these theories of everything been given in the popular uh, uh, consciousness. They've been referred to as God equations, and I think that's not. Uh, uh, that's that, that's quite appropriate in a, in a in a kind of way because it, it is reflective. This is is reflective of the, uh, the the rise of idealist tendencies within the sciences and uh, mystical tendencies within the sciences. And let's quickly define our terms here because um, we're talking about materialism and idealism, but the commonplace meaning of these terms is rather different from what we mean as Marxists. So. Can you quickly explain for our listeners what we mean by this? Sorry, yes, absolutely. Um, no, that I think that first of all, before I define the terms, it's philosophy is absolutely important to the sciences. Right, um, everyone needs to have a philosophy. Um, the idea that uh, you can approach the sciences without a philosophy, uh, and many most scientists do not have a conscious philosophy. That just means that they are, of course, prey to the philosophical prejudices that exist within society. And therefore, these mystical uh, philosoph uh, philosophical trends that, that are very fashionable um, will find their way also into the minds of scientists. But we, as Marxists, are revolutionary materialists. And what we mean by that is that for us, uh, the, all that exists is matter in motion. That's all that, that, that exists in this universe. It's, it's, uh, and, and ideas and consciousness. Is, consciousness is merely uh, the... the, the the phenomena of the material brain are organized in a certain of matter organized in a certain way. It's an emergent phenomenon of uh, of the material world itself, and our ideas are a reflection of the material world. They don't have any independent existence from the material world and the material brain. Um, idealism inverts that that relationship. That relationship, which is the basis of all good science, which assumes that there is a material world out there existing independently of us, which can be understood and known. Um, idealism inverts that relationship. It says that consciousness, thought, and ideas are fundamental, and that the material world 
is uh, is merely the reflection of this world of of ideas or thoughts or consciousness either the the thoughts of man or the thoughts of god and the creation of god um and this idea of creation uh is very much um and very much central to idealism that there that, that, that there ought to be or that there logically is an act of creation because for materialists for us and for for therefore for scientists uh, uh who adhere to mater- materialism um matter has no cause uh there is no as the christians talked about it final cause or first cause uh there is no god in other words that has created the material world but if on the contrary consciousness is fundamental and matter is secondary then matter must have some act of creation it logically flows that a, a creation myth is necessary for uh, for the idealist camp within philosophy and that's why i think it's very significant this idea that uh, the universe originated 13.8 billion years ago yes it's not the 6000 years ago of the uh, of of the book of genesis but uh, it is uh, it is a logically necessary uh, um it is logically necessary within idealism to have an act of creation of some sort this particular question of the beginning of the universe it pertains to the findings of james webb which is what is written about in the idom quickly can you explain exactly what is so significant about the james webb telescope well um first of all uh before going into the discoveries i'd like to pay homage to it as a piece of technology if that's mm. okay it's, it's it's a phenomenal piece of technology it's uh the successor of course to the hubble t- uh, telescope which um was launched about 30 years ago and it represents a, a massive advance upon hubble um it's whereas hubble was was stationed in um an earth orbit this telescope the james webb telescope is stationed about 1.5 million kilometers away from the earth it's it's been launched to an enormous distance um it has about 100 uh, times the uh, um power of the hubble telescope a, a far larger collecting area and is able to observe wavelengths of light in uh, in 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 much it, it has a, a much broader um uh, set of wavelengths that it's also able to observe it's able to observe light in the far infrared which means it's able to observe much more distant galaxies which necessarily appear shifted towards the red end of the spectrum can you explain that quickly assume that nobody assume here nothing. understands <laughs> what you're talking about at any given moment no abs- absolutely um i wouldn't like i wouldn't wish to assume anything but um this is what i'm referring to here is a uh, a phenomenon that was discovered in the early 20th century in the 1920s mm. and this is central to the idea of big bang cosmology um and it's central to why this telescope is so significant and that discovery was a discovery that we owe to a man named Hubble after which the telescope the the predecessor to James Webb was named um and that discovery was that if you look at galaxies beyond our milky way and you measure the distance the further a galaxy is away from us the redder it appears now that has been explained in terms of doppler shift now doppler shift is the idea that if something is moving away from us it appears redder um it's it's light is shifted towards the red end of the spectrum now if no matter which direction we look um and you uh, you see that galaxies are moving away from us um at uh, faster and faster speeds the further they are away um if you accept this doppler shift explanation it would suggest that everything in our local universe is moving away from everything else in other words that everything is expanding 
Um, and therefore, uh, this, this, this is very significant, therefore, that we are able to now launch this, this magnificent piece of equipment into, uh, uh, into, the, into space because it is able to see things which are shifted far further towards the red end of the spectrum and which are therefore far further away from us. Um, uh, galaxies whose the light of which was emitted many billions of years ago. Mm. Um, and so we are effectively seeing these, these galaxies as they existed many billions of years in the past. So you're simultaneously, in looking at great distances, looking into the past. You're seeing back in time. That's precisely, uh, that's precisely the, the, the case. And that is uh, why this telescope and its discoveries have caused something of a stir. Because these um, galaxies that we are observing with the James Webb Telescope, um, if we accept Big Bang cosmology, which says that the universe was created in a massive explosion 13.8 billion years ago, then it would appear that these galaxies um, are at such distances that they, we see them as they would have been maybe at least some of them two, three, or 400 million years after the so-called Big Bang. Mm. Uh, in other words, these are very distant, very red galaxies that, uh, um, that appear in what is really in cosmological terms a mere blink of an eye after the Big Bang took place. What is the nature of these galaxies and why have they thrown... Um, cosmology into a bit of a froth because I've read that they seem to be more mature than they ought to be given the timescales. This deep field view by the James Webb Telescope um, is looking at a tiny proportion of the sky. They 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 talk about uh, the physicists talk about holding uh, a grain of sand up at arm's length. Um, and looking at an area of the sky roughly that size um, in a direction where we are, where we see no stars, nebulae or galaxies or anything like that and just looking at that in, in that one direction and what they see is an enormous population and some of these are precisely extremely red they are extremely red shifted which suggests that they are very, very um, we are looking at them very, very far back in time and the, uh, the idea that these... Uh, initially was that perhaps there was some calibration issue and indeed you would expect there to be a certain amount of calibration issues with a, a high-tech piece of equipment like the James Webb telescope but even after eliminating some of the candidates for very high redshift galaxies on the basis of calibration there still remain a large number of, of galaxies that seem to exist at distances before it ought to be possible to form such galaxies because it takes time for gravity to collapse um, this this diffuse matter that has been spewed out by the Big Bang, uh, allegedly, uh, into uh, these, uh, the, the, these, these behemoths, these large galaxies, um, which we actually see. We see very mature, very large galaxies, very bright galaxies um, at these distances. And when I say very mature, it's not just simply the brightness uh, and the compactness of these galaxies, which has, has occurred extremely quickly. It doesn't sound very quickly when you talk about a galaxy being only 350 million years existing and being mature 350 million years after the Big Bang, as some of these are. Like there's one called Glassy, which is Glass Z13 or something mm. like that. I, I forget the name exactly, but it doesn't. It sounds like well, that's quite a long time, 350 million years to form. Well. It takes our galaxy, the Milky Way, 200 million years to, to carry out a single rotation about its axis. 
So we're talking about less than two rotations of the Milky Way. So just to put it in layman's terms, we should be seeing embryos, but what we're seeing is fully grown adults, in effect, with these galaxies. Yes, that's absolutely the case. And it, it has caused something of, uh, should we say, consternation amongst astrophysicists and cosmologists who are looking for some way to explain this. It seems to violate, uh, well, it either it violates Big Bang cosmology itself and suggests actually maybe the universe wasn't created 13.8 billion years ago. Or, and this is what we're seeing amongst those physicists who are holding with, with grim determination onto Big Bang cosmology and refusing to, to, uh, to, to look at the cosmology from scratch, it would suggest that these galaxies are forming in the blink of an eye by what physical mechanism we do not know, basically. I've heard some of them argue that um, it could be down to what they describe as population three stars, but... From what I've read, no one's ever actually observed conclusively a population three star. It's at the moment a pure postulate. Yes, there are. I've I've seen a number of uh, suggestions, um, all of which seek to basically. Yes, it's like if you're if you're looking in into a creche and you're seeing fully grown adults and uh, being assured that they are actually only six months old. Then it's not a very good creche. <laughs> yeah, needs better security. Yeah, it's uh, clearly there is uh, something is awry. Something doesn't make sense in this situation. And um, yes, it's there is an attempt to justify how these galaxies could have grown to or, or appear this way um, in in a time which doesn't really permit that to happen. And all mm. sorts of theories are brought in to try and explain that the idea of population three stars, an entirely hypothetical uh, type of star which has not been observed. Um, is is brought in as one possible explanation. We have also uh, suggestions that uh, dark matter, which has long been used to plug the holes in the existing Big Bang cosmology, which maybe we can talk about in a minute. Mm. Um, maybe maybe um, uh, dark matter has properties of which we're not currently aware, uh, which allow it to draw in far more matter far more quickly in the early uh, universe. Um, in other words, it's it's a little bit like uh, you know inv inventing this this shadowy puppeteer about which we can give any attributes we like, um, and which we have no evidence for, simply to make it fit in with the facts. And uh, to me, it, I I think there's a there's a there's a um, there's a parallel between what cosmologists are trying to do now and what was attempted in geology in the 17th century when uh, the first breakthroughs were being made in, in geology when it was being discovered that these various strata of the uh, the earth shows that the earth had a, a very diverse history had been through many geological phases and yet everyone knew from the bible that the earth was only six thousand years old how could you fit so much history so much change into six thousand years and all sorts of things were dragged in by the hair to try and explain it. You know, this was the origins of the theories of catastrophism, the idea mm. that Noah's flood and meteors and comets and all sorts of things transformed and retransformed the earth because that was the only means by which you could actually explain such uh, geological variety and such geological history yeah, and it shows in such a, a short amount of time. And it shows a certain philosophical limitation, doesn't it? It shows that you hadn't had the developments in thought to account for anything other than the framework of the biblical explanation to catch up with the empirical data that they were discovering. So they were having to cram that data into the existing framework. It reminds me, actually, of the 
conflict between the Ptolemaic and the Copernican model of the solar system, where initially um, it was believed that the Earth was the centre of the universe and all the other heavenly bodies rotated around the Earth. But then as advances were made in astronomy, um, the the movement of the heavenly bodies didn't match up. And so rather than question the underlying um, model, instead they bolted all sorts of other things on. Um, the idea of epicycles, that there were basically wheels within wheels that accounted for the movements um, around the Earth that didn't match strict concentric rings. Then they came up with this idea that the Earth was actually something like 2,000 miles to the left of the exact centre, rotating around a different fulcrum. They just bolted more and more stuff onto the Ptolemaic view until it became untenable and collapsed. And ultimately, of course, Copernicus's view that the sun was in fact the centre of the solar system um, eventually was, was adopted, but not without much pushback from the religious authorities, yes, um, the, the, the feudal state authorities, but also the scientific establishment. So you saw a similar thing around the theory of evolution, of course, uh, in the in the 18 and 1900s. So um, is that the kind of situation we're in at the moment? Is it a bit like what Thomas Kuhn describes as a paradigm shift in science, where you have this old model, and there's a certain conservatism and inertia that protects this model, but all the data's coming in that assails it, and they're bolting bits on, they get a bit of dark matter over here, and uh, population three star over there to try and hold the old model together, and eventually it just collapses under its own weight. Are we in the middle of that sort of process now? Today, I think, what we see with Big Bang cosmology is that an empirical law, this redshift that I described for our local universe, and bear in mind, we've only, we've only really acknowledged in the past century that there are galaxies outside of our own. There was a big debate in the 1920s. Um, are these little nebulae that we see, these little smudges of light on the night sky, are they merely nebulae attached to the Milky Way or are they their own island universes, i.e. galaxies? And the debate won out, they are separate independent galaxies. But one of the main objections to that idea was that if they are galaxies in their own right, they must be hundreds of millions of light years away from the, the Earth, which was inconceivable to the narrow limits of, of, of the, uh, the mind of the 1920s uh, astronomer. And we see the same thing happening now, except on a bigger, on a slightly bigger scale, because our telescopes have expanded our horizons a little bit. But the empirical law we see for this little corner of the universe is taken as the last word. The, the, the limits that technique applies upon science now are taken as absolute limits, and there is, no, there is nothing more to know about the universe. Now, observational astronomy shatters those limits one by one it shows that there are actually the further we look the more galaxies there are and they are mature galaxies and they've clearly uh, taken a long time to evolve <clears throat> and we are forced to then uh, introduce all sorts of add-ons onto the theory we uh, to save the theory which shows how conservative human consciousness is when our uh, our our instruments of observation increase the our horizons broaden our horizons instead of discarding old ideas which were perhaps suitable to a, a, a more narrow understanding of the universe or a more narrow observational capacity, uh, we cling hard to those ideas. We, we refuse to let go of those ideas. And instead, what you see is that, that the first, in the first instance, there are attempts to introduce all sorts of uh, you know, modifications. And that's exactly what they did with the Earth-centric universe that you mentioned, the geocentric 
Ptolemaic view of the universe before Copernicus came along. Um, there are attempts to introduce what were fundamentally mathematical fudges within the theory to, uh, to basically um, explain things. And what we see is what are effectively mathematical fudge factors introduced into Big Bang cosmology. So yes, it's true actually that the, the Big Bang cosmology of today is not what it was in George Lemaitre's day uh, 100 years ago, um, because fundamentally the observations did not fit the facts of George Lemaitre's uh, theory of Big Bang cosmology. Well, you mentioned Lemaitre, and I think we should use that as an opportunity to talk about the history and development of Big Bang cosmology, because one objection that I've heard from physicists is basically that we caricature their view of the Big Bang. Uh, they say that they don't literally mean that 13.8 billion years ago, everything came into being all at once, all matter, and prior to that, there was definitely nothing. They say that what they actually argue is just that if you measure inflation far enough back, you get to 13.8 billion years, and then everything is hot and dense, and the math stops working. And they're basically agnostic on whether that means that anything existed prior to 13.8 billion years ago. But you mentioned the Metra, who, from what I've read, was the um, kind of progenitor of the Big Bang model of the universe. And not only did he genuinely believe precisely that everything came into being 13.8 billion years ago, but he was also a Catholic priest, and he believed this discovery was proof of the existence of God. It was basically scientific validation of a creation myth. So I suppose what I'm asking is, how far have things moved on in the field since then? Uh, what do modern cosmologists actually think? And is the Big Bang still actually a creation myth snuck in by the back door? Well, um, there's a few questions there, I suppose. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's, that's okay. Um, I suppose the first thing is that, yes, um, the Big Bang cosmology didn't end with Lemaitre. Um, and in fact... Uh, the point is that uh, Big Bang cosmology has uh, um, has had to introduce a lot of different add-ons to make it add up. Um, the first of which is in order to, to make galaxies form at all, within the time allotted to them, um, it is necessary to, to have uh, far more... Uh, there is an accelerant is needed, basically, to, to give it... I, I don't know what a fudge factor is necessary, basically. More attractive power, more gravitational pull to bring these galaxies together. More mass, in effect. More mass. Uh, but we can't see it. It's dark. So this dark matter is uh, is one of the fudge factors. Um, dark energy is another of these fudge factors. And uh, perhaps the most, in my opinion, the most egregious of all is uh, inflation, which is um, used to explain certain discrepancies within... Um, within Big Bang cosmology, such as the fact that the cosmic microwave background radiation, which was hailed by Big Bang cosmologists as this wonderful confirmation of the theory, well, it, it seems to suggest that the universe was is, is all the same temperature all around, um, when that really ought not to be the case, because the uh, uh, if, you, if you look at the cosmic microwave background radiation in one direction of the sky and in the other direction of the sky, they ought not to have been in any in any way in causal contact with each other. They, it's impossible for them to have communicated in the age in in, in the, the the time allotted by the universe. And so this this idea of inflation, whereby the universe actually went through a period of 
enormous expansion within a, a, a tiny, tiny fraction of a second. Every single nanometer was blown up to several light years wide. Um, now, <laughs> there's no known mechanism by which that can happen, but it is, it is an accepted part of Big Bang cosmology. Why? Because it is necessary to, to save the theory, basically. Um, it's necessary to salvage the, uh, the theory. Now, to come on to the... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think these are more absurd than any of the add-ons which were brought into play with the Ptolemaic view of the universe to save that theory. Um, and uh, there is certainly, I think, a certain sense of, of malaise within uh, Big Bang cosmology because... None of these things like dark matter have been discovered. No mechanisms for inflation have certainly been discovered. Um, and things that were not predicted, galaxies in the early universe that are far more mature than they ought to be, enormous megastructures, billions of light years wide that simply should not exist according to the established theory. All of these things are beginning to weigh upon cosmology. They're weighing upon it. It is in crisis. There is a questioning within it. Uh, that's, that's certainly the case. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the case, say, 20 years ago. Now, Lemaitre obviously regarded the Big Bang as the origins of everything. He was a religious man. He had the philosophical motivation to, to adopt that approach. But it certainly was, it certainly is not the case that he was alone in that. Of course, it is that within the popular consciousness, within popular understanding of Big Bang cosmology, the universe did begin as a singularity, a point in space and time. Uh, in, from which everything exploded, an act of creation. Um, that is how Big Bang cosmology is seen. And quite frankly, um, it is also seen that way, and certainly far more so in the past was seen that way by uh, physicists up until the recent period. Um, uh, uh, Stephen Hawking, for example. Um, you can pull out... I, I, I've, I've read a quote in The Indefense of Marxism magazine precisely by Stephen Hawking, saying that the universe began... As a, as didn't always exist. It began as a point in a singularity, a point in space and time. Many physicists still hold to that. There have been attempts, uh, because of the unease which physicists feel at this idea of a singularity, to uh, to dodge this idea of a, of a of an individual point in space and time. You have, for example, the idea of big bounces, the idea of many. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, contractions and expansions of the universe. Mm, that's, another, that's another idea that Hossenfelder says is unscientific or ascientific, yeah. as a matter of fact. And, and, and there are worse uh, theories still, the idea of uh, brains and M-theory, the idea that, that you have basically universes budding off of other universes. Uh, rather than having one act of creation, we now introduce many, many acts of creation. They're quite frankly not a step they're not. They're not a philosophical advance or a step forward from this crisis-ridden Big Bang cosmology. Well, bringing uh, God back in through the back door, but polytheism. It sounds like. Well, indeed. In, instead of one act of creation, we have many, many, many little acts of creation. It's. Uh, it's certainly. They, they are as speculative or worse than than established Big Bang cosmology. But I will say this much: the fact that you have these proliferation of alternative cosmologies in the past 10, 15, 20 years, which you did not have before that is a sign that this, that it's in crisis and that physicists, cosmologists, they are groping towards something else. But quite frankly, uh, uh, what they are what they are groping towards is is uh, is still within the very strict limits, the very strict horizons of the established cosmology. It still accepts the fundamental precepts of that cosmology. Moreover, if you criticize or oppose the, the notion of the Big Bang, which if nothing else, it violates so many other things that are taken to be good coin by physics, like the 
immutability of matter and energy, that it can neither be created nor destroyed, only changed. Well, if it can't be created or destroyed, then how can you talk about matter being brought into being? How can you talk about a time before matter? How can you talk about a time before time? You can't. Um, but if you criticize this model, you're put in the same camp as a climate change denier, an anti-vaxxer, someone who goes on about chemtrails and 5G. There's a sort of defensiveness around what is increasingly looking like, on the basis of the empirical evidence, an untenable and idealist view of the existence of the universe. Where does that come from? I think actually I have two questions. The first one is, sorry, this is a, this is a quantum question, two question upon a question. Um, the first one is, why is it that now mystical and idealist notions are finding their way into the sciences? And secondly, why is there a defensive reaction around them? Why is there this um, protective reflex around the old paradigm? To come back to what you said at the very beginning um, of, of your point there, um, it, I think it's certainly the case that you ask the layman, the man in the street, what is Big Bang cosmology? What is the Big Bang? It's the origins of the universe. But I, I studied um, cosmology to a master's level about 15 years ago. So maybe it's not entirely up to date, but I can tell you that the majority opinion amongst physicists at that time was that the Big Bang was the origins of the universe. Um, right back to a singularity. That's how I was taught it, basically. Uh, beyond that, there'd be dragons. You know, there was no, it was, it was, uh, it, it, it's not to be uh, questioned what's, what's beyond that. And uh, quite frankly, at, at undergrad and master's level, most people are just trying to pass exams. They accept as good coin what they are being taught. Uh, there's not much questioning of it. But when it comes to the question of, well, was, was it a singularity? Did something come before that? It's, uh, um, it's, it's almost like, well, let's just do the maths. And uh, that's all that matters, really, is just sort of like do the maths. Um, it seems to show the observation, the universe as it is uh, uh, now. Uh, it seems to explain this, this or this phenomenon, like the, the cosmic microwave background radiation. And there's an aversion to philosophy. There's actually an aversion among scientists, and I think this is significant, to tackling the philosophical que questions that arise out of uh, the sciences. And it's not just within Big Bang cosmology. You see it particularly... In, uh, in in quantum mechanics, I'm, I'm often like... Uh, a lot of woo seems to congregate around quantum mechanics. There is, and particularly in the philosophy of science departments, and therefore um, within, the science, within the physics departments, there's a bit of a revulsion to the philosophy because the dominant philosophy is, is a lot of mystical hand-waving. Which is fair enough, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's a fair enough gut reaction, but it's, uh, it's an incorrect reaction because mm. actually the, the only way you fight a bad philosophy is with a good philosophy. And um, this... this, this Part of the problem is precisely that most scientists do not have a philosophy. They do not have an interest in it. And when I'm asked, what is the dominant philosophy, uh, philosophical interpretation of quantum mechanics amongst quantum physicists, I say it's the shut up and calculate model. Mm. In other words, do the maths. It gives you the result. What is actually going on at the level of uh, the, the fundamental level of reality is, uh, is, ir is irrelevant to us. We're just there to crunch the numbers and figure out what's, uh, what's you know, do the maths, basically. Um, which is uh, which is unfortunate um, because actually it's precisely this lack of philosophical training, a lack of a, a clear and independent uh, standpoint amongst physicists that allows uh, that allows by proxy the, uh, the, the the philosophical moods already existing in society to penetrate into uh, the sciences. There's a battle. There's a, there's a battle going on. 
that most phys- scientists are not necessarily aware of for the very existence of science. Capitalism is corroding it from all angles. It's, uh, it's it, as I say, it's, it, you, you have a replication crisis where uh, you have uh, a publish or perish culture within universities. You have cuts and austerity. Um, and uh, you have all of these, uh, this, this lack of, uh, of, of real breakthroughs compared to the past. That's something that's been very much noticed now is that in the, the, the number of scientific revolutions, shall we say, to use a much over, over, overused expression, has decreased with time over the past century. Mm. And uh, yeah, science is, is in a deep crisis. And it's, yeah, there is this philosophical crisis to, to, to cap everything off. Where um, yeah, idealist moods are making their, themselves expressed in the uh, in the sciences, and in some respects, there are very mundane things which keep this going. There is, of course, uh, within the scientific establishment, within university campuses, there are a lot of material interests which are connected to the established theories. Um, there's 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 books published about quantum interpretations. There's reputations staked upon the theory of. A big bang cosmology there's a lot of there's a lot of hours at very expensive telescopes being spent uh, investigating these niche questions uh, that are related to cosmology and therefore um there is there are, there are also material there are also material interests which uh, are able to um, uh, build a barrier to, to really revolutionary science as well but don't you think there's a couple of other things as well because on the one hand if you take the man in the streets I think that um, certainly in the last period where you've had the increasing rise of conspiracy theories around COVID and rejection of the scientific consensus, there's a bit of a mystical view of the scientific consensus with a capital S and a capital C that you're not allowed to question, you're not allowed to criticise. And obviously, um, it's true that right-wing demagogues play upon what is basically a confused anti-establishment mood. Um, you know, Donald Trump and people like this in order to cast doubt on very real and very important scientific discoveries around vaccination and climate change and, and, and this sort of thing. But obviously, the scientific consensus can be wrong because it's not aloof from politics. It's connected to the crisis of capitalism. The crisis of capitalism, we often say, is also a crisis of ideas. And I think that that really relates to what you're describing. Because the other thing I wanted to say is that this creeping idealism in the sciences, it feels to me like it also reflects a certain retreat from a reality that the intellectual layer in society, the intelligentsia, if you like, is um, confused by, is um, disgusted by. They, they see a world in chaos and crisis, uh, falling apart at the seams. You have the cost of living crisis, the Ukraine war, etc., etc. And that reality is unbearable but they can't comprehend it because they're they're not marxist they can't get beneath the surface to where that crisis comes from so there's a certain instinctual retreat away from materialism towards idealism and i think i i also think it's possible that a section of the political establishment finds these ideas quite useful because if you can convince people that nothing is is really true that thought precedes reality that there's no such thing as uh, a stable and clear you know material truth out there 
then why bother fighting? Why bother resisting the status quo? It's all just a point of view as to whether it's even a bad thing that we're all miserable and oppressed and exploited. I think that the um, postmodern trend in philosophy is connected to that. Sorry, I know that's about three or four questions, but just to pull it together in one to put (laughs) to you, to pull it together into one to put to you, do you think that the um, crisis of science, on the one hand, it's a conservatism related to protecting prestige and, and funding and this sort of thing. But is it also a, a reflection of a deeper and more fundamental crisis of ideas and confidence in uh, capitalism that affects the whole of society and is probably unconsciously felt by scientists and reflects itself in their work? Well, yeah, I mean, there are, yeah, there's a, a lot to unwrap, I think, in that question. Um, so just to take a few points that you mentioned, you, you know, the idea that uh, of questioning something like the Big Bang, a Big Bang cosmology, yeah, it can be very, uh, it's a very easy thing to lump that together with, uh, you know, climate denial and, and COVID denial and all of this sort of stuff. Um, but let's let's be clear what's uh, what's going on with the, this 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 wave of uh, conspiracy theories and COVID denial and all of this chemtrails and all of this sort of stuff. Why are these ideas taking off in popularity? It's because there's a widespread distrust within society. There is a sense that the establishment are lying to us. There's a sense that the scientific establishment are no better, quite frankly, than the rest of the establishment. And um, yeah, there is there is uh, suspicion, there is doubt, and and of course right-wing demagogues play upon that and uh, to promote all of these crazy conspiracies. Um, but quite frankly, that that doubt and suspicion, although it's played upon in a reactionary way by these demagogues, it has a basis in fact that we are living in a society run by a ruling class which is which is bankrupt of ideas, mm. which is which is which cannot uh, give us a direction forward, a, a way forward to the future. And um, the sciences are plagued with all sorts of crises. And it does no credit to, to um, the sciences and their authority, their diminishing authority amongst a, a skeptical society uh, or skeptical layers within society. Um, when you have these, these theories being propped up by inertia, there is uh, an attempt to defend uh, privilege and prestige within these institutions. Um, and there are reactionary philosophical uh, prejudices at the root of certain ideas that predominate within certain areas of the sciences so it doesn't do any credit actually to the uh, the overall uh, uh, fortunes of the sciences and the prestige of the sciences but um i mean there are many things that uh, feed into this philosophical crisis certainly there is a yeah a sense of malaise within society and a layer within the middle class and the ruling class that is inclined to turn away from reality to seek refuge in in uh, in in a, in a better life when you're dead in a in a mm. in a better life once we're out of this this rotten, corrupt world that we live in. But the uh, yes, there is there is an aspect of that. I don't think that that is the conscious philosophical outlook of most physicists, but it can find its way unconsciously within the sciences. And then you touch upon an, uh, an important point, which is the, co- the, the significance of idealist philosophy and mysticism as a uh, a conscious reactionary tool by the ruling class to uh, to to combat uh, militant materialism revolutionary marxism and to 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 confuse the masses to actually uh, hide the real nature of reality from the masses there are conscious real- reactionaries of that kind and particularly i think it's very interesting if you look at the early 20th century 
um, where you see the rise of positivism within the sciences, which is associated by with people like Ernst Mach, with the Vienna School of Positivists in, uh, um, in, in the University of Vienna. And these philosophical reactionaries, these idealists, developed their ideas in direct reaction to the rise of Marxism at that time in the early 20th century. They were, they were open reactionaries. They were um, extremely uh, hostile to uh, Bolshevism, to communism. And that also found, there were also conscious reactionaries within the sciences. In early quantum mechanics, there's a guy called Pascal Jordan, who was a, a German physicist and a member of the Nazi party. And he described positivist philosophy and the success it was having within quantum mechanics uh, and the interpretations of Heisenberg and Bohr and these sort of people. As a, as an important victory against Bolshevism, he mm. saw it as a he saw it as one. That's quite blatant. Yeah, he was a very blatant reactionary, and he saw it as one thread amongst many. He saw, he saw ultimately Bolshevism was going to be defeated by blood and iron and and uh, war against uh, the, uh, the, the the Bolsheviks and and Russia. But uh, he also saw what he was doing as a supplementary effort in the fight against Marxism. Mm. So that is also an element. Um, I wouldn't say it's a big conscious element amongst physicists today. But historically, that heritage of positivist philosophy, it does it does trace itself back to these reactionary ideas in the early 20th century. I should be very clear before someone goes on the internet saying that uh, the INT and International Marxist Radio uh, reject quantum theory in relation to saying earlier that a lot of Wu was attracted to quantum theory. Quantum theory is, of course, an incredibly successful field. Um, there, there are many technologies that we use today every single day that we simply couldn't uh, without quantum computing, for example. But um, it is a field where idealism tends to creep in. Obviously, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, whereby it's the observer that collapses the quantum superposition of a, of a particle and essentially gives it its presence in reality. That's idealist um, to the core. That is an idealist interpretation of, of reality. And I don't think it's an accident that a lot of these ideas congregate around quantum mechanics. But are there other fields, uh, aside from cosmology, aside from quantum theory, where idealist nonsense is, is common? Well, uh, I mean, you, you, it is an entirely uh, uh, a separate podcast episode, perhaps, to talk about quantum mechanics. But you're right. I mean, we're talking about not rejecting quantum mechanics, but certain interpretations. Uh, there are other interpretations. There are materialist interpretations, which are gev given very little time of day, actually, um, within university campuses, despite the fact that they are fully consistent uh, with quantum mechanics. The point the point being, though, that uh, yes, the, the dominant theory, the dominant interpretation, should I say, is very much an idealist one. And that is reflective of the trends, the tendency towards decay, uh, the tendency towards uh, um, philosophical decay and decline within the sciences. And yes, you see it elsewhere. Um, you see it in quantum mechanics, cosmology, theoretical physics and neuroscience as well. Um, I don't have time um, to, to really develop too much upon that, but uh, you also see a lot of... Um, mystical ideas about the origins of consciousness, where consciousness comes from, how it is connected to the material brain. Um, yes, this is not this is by no means an isolated incident. I think that's the point. When you add all these things up, it produces a picture. Well, we'll have to bring you on again, Ben, perhaps, to talk about neuroscience and the idealism around consciousness in a future episode. But just to bring this discussion to a bit of a conclusion, 
I can imagine some people right now hammering away with angry comments saying, oh, where do you Marxists get off? All you do is grab anti-During and dialects of nature and slam them on the table and say, ah, oh, Engels and Marx said in the 1800s that the universe is infinite in space and time, and that's all there is to it. Um, what do you say to those people who have a bit of a dismissive attitude of our right to comment on questions of science? Well, I think that to answer that question, I would uh, refer to Copernicus, who, when he uh, published his book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres, which really laid down the gauntlet to the Catholic Church and to the old cosmology, um, he did so from his deathbed because he anticipated that by laying down a revolutionary challenge, which is what this was, it wasn't just a scientific treatise it was a it was a revolutionary challenge to the whole ideological outlook of the ruling class of the feudal elite of medieval europe um that he could be risking his life and uh, others after copernicus really did lose their lives um giordano bruno was put to the stake uh um, defending his views um galileo was silenced by the inquisition of the catholic church um in other words, science was, uh, wasn't was just regarded as something in a, to be left to the scientists and uh, to be, uh, you know, it, it wasn't just regarded as some isolated sphere apart from the other spheres of, of, of society and, uh, and politics and everything else. Rather, it was regarded correctly as intimately connected with everything else. And the, uh, the cosmology of that time was a prop of the existing ruling class. Just as the, our present ruling class has its philosophy, it has its ideological justifications. And, and, uh, and back then, uh, science was very much one of the fields of battle of the class struggle, of the rising bourgeois class uh, that represented progress, that represented a materialist outlook and that adv advanced science, actually, and used science and used philosophy as a weapon to, to bring down basically the uh, the dictatorship, the spiritual and intellectual dictatorship of the Catholic Church at that time. Um, so it's very much, uh, it very much always has been a, a field in the class struggle. Now capitalism is unable to really advance the sciences as it once did. Um, it's able to, to launch, uh, you know, the, the, we're able to launch these uh, tremendous instruments of scientific research into space. And yet alongside this, this incredible advanced technology, we have the, uh, the most uh, ancient of prejudices um, taken right out of the book of Genesis being revived at the very heart of the sciences. Uh, the, the whole of, uh, in fact, of human culture is under threat from the continued survival of capitalism. The fact that the, this capitalist system refuses to die, it threatens to, to, to throw back humanity. And I'm not just talking about climate change and, uh, and, and crises and war and, and, and all of the disasters which capitalism is bringing down upon us, which are, are very real. But um, it's also a cultural crisis. The crisis of capitalism is also a crisis of culture. It also leads to the spreading of moods of pessimism and despair. And it can infect, um, it can infect layers of the, the in intelligentsia, of intellectuals. It can infect layers of the working class. And um, our struggle against capitalism isn't just a struggle, uh, you know, for the, the bread and butter um, uh, um, demands of the working class although that is very much part of it we are of course we, def we defend wages against 
the the, the, the corrosive effect of inflation. We uh, we defend uh, the working class in every struggle, uh, defensive and offensive, that it has to wage on the economic front. But we also wage a struggle on the philosophical front. Because what is the, the struggle on the philosophical front? It's it's a struggle for clear ideas. And we believe if the working class is going to conquer society, if it's going to carry out its historic mission, which is to overthrow capitalism and reconstitute society on a really humane basis, on a socialist basis, then it has to have clear ideas. It has to have a clear understanding of its position in the world, of, uh, of, of all of the contradictions within society. And it has to be able to see beyond the fog of confusion, which emanates from the ruling class and, uh, f and, and also befogs and confuses uh, scientists as well. So it's very much part of the same struggle. It's, uh, it's part of, you know, Engels actually said that, that, that for us as Marxists, there are three strands to the, to the class struggle. There's, yes, there is the economic struggle and the political struggle, but there's also a third, which is at least as important as the, as the two other uh, uh, strands. And that is the, the theoretical struggle. That is the struggle for clear ideas and, and the struggle for theory. So, um, yes, that means on, on all fronts, on, on the front of literature, art, science, uh, philosophy, um, we do have something to say. These are, these are not, these do not exist in splendid isolation. Um, and, uh, scientific truth is never established merely through consensus. It's, uh, it's, it's of course the question of scientific truth is the question of whether such and such an idea corresponds to reality. That's, that's what gives it truth. Not that it is accepted by the majority. Um, and therefore, you know, we are striving actually for a scientific method. Um, and we are striving to sharpen that method, which is a method we apply to society only through scientifically analyzing society, drawing out the laws of of, of, of society and of, of the class struggle and of its development. Can we hope to intervene in, in, uh, in that struggle? Just as to understand the, 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 the principle of the lever, to understand uh, the all the other principles of physics and, uh, and the sciences allows us to manipulate nature to our end. We also try to divine the laws of, uh, of, of human society in order to actually push society in the direction which, we, uh, which it needs to go in order to avoid the precipice that capitalism is, uh, is, is, is leading humanity to. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's not only justified, it's entirely necessary. And I think it shows a sort of an unfortunate um, groveling attitude towards the existing prejudices of the ruling class to say, actually, no, we should just, we should just accept what is given by the, the men in white coats at the universities. No, they're just, they are ordinary men and women with uh, who are just as pre predisposed, just as disposed towards uh, adopting the philosophical prejudices of the, of the society around them as anyone. Um, and for the most part, that's, that's what's lacking is in, in scientific departments is uh, there is a lack of philosophy. There is a, a lack of knowledge about philosophy. It's not taught. You don't get taught about philosophy at school. There is no philosophical training. We can't count upon that. In Marx's day, you did get taught about, you know, the the ideas of, uh, of, of philosophy, people like Hegel were prominent and, and were taught in the, in the universities and the schools. You don't get that training. Um, and, uh, but we, there are amongst scientists, there are those, there are conscious materialists and there are those with a sense of unease. And there are those that see that all is not well within the sciences and within society at large and are looking for a way out. They're looking for a revolutionary way out. And it's incumbent upon us as Marxists also to reach those layers of scientists with our program, with our revolutionary program. Um, and with our, with our philosophy, uh, which, which also, I think, 
um, has a lot to offer the uh, science itself, a, a conscious dialectical materialist method. Once it is uh, embraced by, uh, by, by uh, scientists, which are obviously under capitalism, that's impossible. Capitalism is, is driving science into a philosophical dead end. But on the basis of a socialist society in which dialectical materialism is able to, um, and philosophical training is a part of the training and education of all scientists, I think it would have a, a fertilizing effect upon the, uh, the development of the sciences. Well, there you have it. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. That was International Marxist Radio. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again same time next week for more Marxist news, theory and analysis. And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, get in touch via our website, marxist.com find out more about how you can join the international Marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are.